0: This week on the show, we have a EULA in FOSS clothing for you, NetBSD with more LLBM support, thoughts on FreeBSD 12.0, and FreeBSD performance against Windows and Linux on Xeon, as well as Microsoft shipping NetBSD story, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. ESD Now, episode 280, Foss Clothing, recorded on the 9th of January, 2019. Um, the show notes still says 2019, but I corrected that. And we have headlines for this week, but I'm Benedikt Euschling, your show host. And I'm Alan Jude. We're a little bit off key here, but we get back to our regular headlines, uh, starting with a Eula in Foss Clothing uh, by none other than a certain Brian Cantrell.
1: Yes. Uh, so this is a follow up to the, uh, open source midlife crisis article we, uh, covered a couple weeks ago. Uh, he says there's been a tremendous amount of reaction to and discussion about that, uh, midlife crisis blog post as part of the discussion on hacker news. Uh, Jay Kreps, uh, of Confluent, one of the companies that was mentioned in the article, uh, took the time to write a detailed response with a link there, which he eventually elevated to a blog post. Um, And he says, uh, let me be clear that I hold Jay in high regard as both a software engineer and as an entrepreneur, and I appreciate the time he took to write a thoughtful response. That said, there are aspects of his response that I found troubling enough to closely reread the Confluence community license, and that in turn has led me to a deeply disturbing realization of potentially what's going on here. Uh, And then there's a section here talking a bit about um comparisons that Jay made with um saying Brian's analogy about uh books, once you write it and people buy it and so on, uh being not um quite accurate. Um and, or I guess uh so Jay says the book analogy is not accurate for starters, copyright does not apply to physical books and intangibles like software or digital books in the same way. Um and Brian says, you know, what Jay said is true to a degree. Uh, and he goes on and looks at it and wonders about the analogy about digital books. Um, and he says, digital books and proprietary software do actually share one thing in common. though so it's horrifying. In both cases, their creator have maintained that they don't actually or that you don't actually own the copyright uh, if just because you paid for it. That is, unlike a physical book, uh, you don't actually buy a copy of a digital book. You merely acquire a license to use their book uh, under the terms of that license. But how do they do this? Because when you access the digital book, you click the little I agree on a license. An end-user license agreement, or EULA, that makes clear that you don't actually own anything. You know, the exact language varies, but for example... Uh, I guess the one Brian had handy was the uh, VMware users and uh, uh, end user license agreement saying 2.1 general license grant VMware grants to you a non-exclusive non-transferable license to use the software and the documentation during the period of the license and within the territory solely for your internal business operations and subject to the provisions of the product guide Uh, unless otherwise indicated. Uh, in the order license granted to you will be perpetual Uh, you will use uh, for object code only and will commence on either delivery of the physical media or the date you are notified of availability of an electronic download and there's a similar one for windows 10 license Uh, and it says the software is licensed not sold Under this agreement, we grant you the right to install and run one instance of the software on your device, the licensed device, uh, for use by one person at a time, so long as you comply with the terms of this agreement. Uh, And so Brian goes on, that's pretty concise. The software is licensed, not sold. So why do this at all? Uh, EULAs are an attempt to get out of copyright law, where the copyright owner is quite limited in the rights afforded to them, Uh, as to how the content can be used or consumed, Uh, and instead goes into contract law, where there are many fewer limits, and EULAs are accordingly uh, historically restricted, or uh, tried to restrict all sorts of things. Like there have been EULAs that have tried to prevent you from doing benchmarking or reverse engineering, or even running competitive products. Uh, So given the uh, owner's restrictions... It is no surprise that EULAs are very controversial.
0: It's uh, it's certainly Mm -hmm. uh, interesting to see what copyright actually is to to multiple people or different areas.
1: Yeah, Uh, so then going on to, I think they have another example, uh, looking at GitHub and saying, so to GitHub, assume that this is in fact a EULA. I think it is perilous to allow EULAs to sit in public repositories. It's one thing to have one click through to accept a license, uh, though, again, that itself is dubious. But to say that a Git clone is an implicit acceptance of a contract that happens to be sitting somewhere in the repository beggars belief. Um, with efforts like choosealicense.com, uh, GitHub has uh, been a model in guiding projects with respect to licensing it would be helpful for uh, GitHub's console to weigh in on their view on the new strain of source-available proprietary software licenses and the degree in which it comes into conflict with GitHub's own terms of service. Because uh, I guess in a bit we skipped over, there's a bit about um, GitHub's terms of service not necessarily allowing that.
0: Ah, yeah. I, I just cloned this repo, and
1: who's owning it now? Yeah. Or, uh, well, yeah. in particular, saying that cloning the repo is accepting the license uh, is when the license isn't necessarily presented to you is probably an issue. So uh, Brian closes out with a message to foundations. So two foundations concerned with various uh, software liberties, including the Apache Foundation, the Linux Foundation, the Free Software Foundation, the Electronic Front Fear Foundation, the Open Source Initiative, and the Software Freedom Conservancy. The open source community needs your legal review on this. I don't think I'm being an alarmist when I say that this is potentially a dangerous new precedent that's being set. It would be very helpful to have your lawyers offer their perspective on this, even if they disagree with one another. We seem to be in some terrible new era of Franken licenses, where the worst of proprietary licenses are bolted onto the goodwill created by an open source license. Uh, so we need your legal voices before these uh, creatures destroy the village. <laughs> yeah,
0: that's a good analogy. Yeah, so it's yeah, licenses have always been difficult to interpret, and without being uh, in the lawyer business,
1: well, this is um, why the BSD license is so nice. It's hard to get confused when it's two sentences.
0: <laughs> that's easy to understand. Yeah. Not, and you don't get bored reading it. It's not just oh, I'm on page three or fifty. It's like ah, it's just short blurb I could put up on a single slide in readable fonts. That is, um, yeah. So that's another benefit of the BSDs. Uh, we also have some uh, story about uh, NetBSD furthering their LLVM developments because mm-hmm. uh, in 2019 they have a or will have a more complete LLVM support. So. We remember we, coupled this, uh, we covered this a couple of times in previous episodes, uh, giving you an update about NetBSD's efforts to have um, more complete LLVM support. And this is um, from December 30, a NetBSD um, update on their efforts in porting the LLVM. And they write there that um, it's, it's, it's Camille uh, posting that. Yeah. Uh, that he's recently helped the NetBSD developers to improve the support for this operating system in various LLVM components. And as you can read in their previous report, that's linked there, they've been focused on fixing and build test failures in the purpose or with the purpose of improving the build bot coverage. And previously, they've uh, resolved test failures in LLVM, Clang, LLD, LibUnwind, OpenMP, and partially LibC++. And during the remainder of the month, They've been working on the remaining LibC++ test values, improving the NetBSD Clang driver, and helping Camille uh, Reiterowski with compiler-rt. So they have uh, apparently uh, had some locale issues in NetBSD with uh, in combination with LibC++, and the remaining LibC++ work focused on resolving those locale issues, uh, which consisted of two parts. The first is resolving the incorrect assumptions in re.trade's case, insensitive translation handling. There's a uh, commit uh, link there, uh, as long along with the uh, actual review for that, and enabling the locale support. Number two, uh, and disabling test or the tests failing because of partial locale support in NetBSD. So that was an issue. The first of the problems was related to testing the routine converting strings to common case for the purpose of case insensitive regular expression matching. So typically, you would don't you don't match the uppercase. You always convert back to the lowercase and then see whether that matches. But if you ac- actually are looking for uh, sensitive cases, then this doesn't need to happen. So uh, the test attempted to translate uh, backslash X capital D capital A and backslash X capital F capital A characters stored as characters in UTF-8 locale and expected both of them to map to backslash FA, i.e. according to Unicode Latin 1 supplement. However, this behavior is only exhibited on OS ten. Other systems, including NetBSD, FreeBSD, and Linux, returned the character unmodified. So they came to the conclusion that the most likely cause of the incompatible behavior is that both uh, backslash XDA and X, backslash F, fa alone do not compromise valid UTF-8 sequences. However, since the translation function can take only a single character and is therefore income, uh, incapable of processing multibyte sequences, it is unclear how it should handle the range of uh, from backslash x80 till backslash xff. That's normally used for multibyte sequences or not used at all. So apparently the OS X implementers decided to map it into backslash u0080 till backslash u00ff range uh, and treat that equivalently to wchar_t, underscore t, while others decided to simply ignore that.
1: Yeah, I don't know <laughs> You got no, the full detail on there. Yeah, yeah, it's too too technical, but they also
0: have uh, driver updates for Clang, and uh, specifically, they have recently added address significance tables, uh, causing crashes of bin utils, passing reentrant when building sanitized code, and establishing proper support for finding and using locally installed LLVM components like uh, libc++, compiler rt, etc., so the first problem uh, was mostly a side effect of Camel testing uh, his Z3 dump. And uh, he noticed that binutils crashed on executables produced by recent versions of Clang. Uh, given the earlier experiences they had in Gen 2, they, corrected, or they correctly guessed that it is caused by address significance table support that is enabled by default in LLVM 7. And there's a link to the address significance table support uh, documents. And there is also, while technically they could be, um, this could be actually ignored by tooling but not supporting them, it causes verbose warnings in some versions of binutils and explicitly crashes in the 2.27 version used by NetBSD at the moment. So in order to prevent users from experiencing that, uh, they've agreed to disable address significance table by default on NetBSD, and uh, that's, uh, what's interesting there is that the block for disabling LLVM underscore adder sign has grown since to include PS4 and Gen2, which uh, indicates that we're not the only ones considering this default as a bad idea. And they also have a bunch of uh, information about the compiler RT work. Uh, they have some build fixes there, uh, like fixing use of variables whose values could not be directly determined at compile time for the array length and detecting missing lib LLVM testing support and skipping test re- uh, requiring those. And there's more at the at the end, but uh, the summary goes, um, at this point, NetBSD LLVM BuildBot is building and testing the following projects with no expected test failures. LLVM, Clang, Clang Tools Extra, LLD, Poly, OpenMP, libunwind, libcxxabi, uh, libcxx, and yeah, those are the ones. Uh, They also list some future plans they have that next month they're planning to work on uh, the next items from the to-do. Most notably, this includes building compiler RT on BuildBot and running the tests, porting LLD to actually produce working executables on NetBSD, and porting the remaining compiler RT components, dfsan, esan, lsan, and shadow call stack. Okay, yeah, progress. So, it's time for News Roundup this week. Uh, we have thoughts on FreeBSD 12.0. Now that it's out, uh, DistroWatch is covering it.
1: Yes, uh, post by Jesse Smith saying, uh, Playing with FreeBSD uh, for the past weeks, I didn't feel as though there was any big surprises or changes in this release compared to FreeBSD 11. In typical FreeBSD fashion, progress tends to be evolutionary rather than revolutionary, and this release feels like a polished and improved incremental step forward. I like that the installer now handles both UFS and ZFS in guided partitioning uh, and in a friendly manner. Um, In the past, I had some trouble getting ZFS's boot menu to work with boot environments, but this is all fixed now. Okay. Um, Something which stands out about FreeBSD compared to most Linux distributions is that FreeBSD rarely holds the user's hand, but also rarely surprises the user. That's what I like about it, is that it's not Mm -hmm. randomly changing things in the background without asking me. Um, This means there is more reading to do up front, and users may struggle to get used to editing config files in a text editor, but FreeBSD rarely does anything unless it's specifically told to. Updates rarely change the system's behavior, and working technologies rarely get swapped out for something new, Uh, and systems and its uh, applications never crash during my trials. Everything was rock solid. Uh, The operating system may seem like a minimal blank slate to new users, but it's uh, wonderfully dependable and predictable in my experience. I probably wouldn't recommend FreeBSD for desktop use for new users. Uh, It's close relative GhostBSD ships with a a friendly desktop by default and does a bunch of special work to make the end user experience more smooth. Uh, But for people who want to run servers, possibly for years without changes or issues, FreeBSD is a great option. It's also an attractive choice, in my opinion, for people who'd like to build their system from the ground up, like you would using Debian server install or something like Arch Linux. Apart from the base tools and the documentation, there's nothing on a FreeBSD system apart from what you put on it. Um, And they talk a bit about that and uh, the fact that when you first boot it up, it only needs uh, a small amount of RAM. The completed install is about 500 megabytes of disk space uh, and is running about 15 processes and using 18 megabytes of memory, uh, and then about 200 megabytes of wired, including ZFS, which is mostly going to be a cache of most of that 500 megabytes that you've used so far. Mm. Um, They also say that FreeBSD worked very well uh, when running VirtualBox. The system ran quickly and smoothly without any serious issues. By default, FreeBSD does not integrate with the virtual environment and can't make full use of the host screen resolution. However, the VirtualBox guest modules are available through FreeBSD's package manager, and once those are installed, the system can use the full range of display resolutions. Uh, Usually in the past, FreeBSD has not worked well on my physical desktop hardware. Uh, Either the system would not boot at all, or it would boot with restricted video resolution or something. This time around, however, I was pleased to discover that FreeBSD 12 could boot uh, on my workstation, both UEFI and Legacy. Uh, FreeBSD played well with my physical hardware, and my only limitation was that the operating system could not uh, detect either of my USB wireless devices that I plugged into the system. And they say this is a definite step forward for FreeBSD where my test hardware is concerned and reflects some of the recent successes. Excellent. And they talk a bit about the package manager... Uh, and some of the other stuff. And they talk about the fact that you can build from source, but you don't have to. Um, Yeah, it says FreeBSD treats the core of the operating system as separate from software developed by third parties. While package and the ports collection deal with the third party software, updates uh, for the base operating system are handled by the FreeBSD update tool. Running this tool will fetch and optionally install and update uh, the core of the system. Uh, using FreeBSD Update, we can also upgrade to future versions of the operating system. For example, transitioning from 12.0 to 12.1 or to 13.0 in the future. And then they talk a bit about boot environments and using BEADM or BECTL. Uh, it says, one nice benefit of working with boot environments is that the operating system is kept separate from the data and uses home directories. This means if the administrator needs to roll back a change, our data files uh, and personal settings are not affected. It is also possible to snapshot user uh, files for recovery purposes, but these snapshots are separate from the boot environments, meaning you can undo changes to the operating system or the applications without losing the files in your home directory. And then they talk a bit about setting up uh, desktop environments and using things like VLC. Oh, yes. uh, (laughs) and a bunch <laughs> multimedia of okay and they
0: conclude with
1: uh, uh, most of the part I already read mm-hmm. okay
0: so yeah it seems like they they've been uh, impressed by it or have better experience yeah. than before and yeah it's uh, it's what I hear from other people as well about the release
1: and it's got an average rating of 9.1 out of 10 from 67 reviewers on DistroWatch Ooh, okay
0: Oh, speaking of points here, we also have a story, the next one, about FreeBSD 12.0 performance against Windows and Linux on an Intel Xeon server on Pharonix. So uh, they did uh, apparently more benchmarks and start that with last week they posted benchmarks on Windows Server 2019 against various Linux distributions using a Tion dual socket Intel Xeon server. In that article, they are complementary, or they have some complementary results when adding in the performance of FreeBSD 11.2 against the new FreeBSD 12.0 stable release uh, for the leading BSD operating system. Uh, as some fun benchmarks to end out 2018, uh, there they have the results of FreeBSD 11.2 or 12.0, including an additional run when using GCC rather than Clang, up against the Windows Server and several enterprise-ready Linux distributions.
1: Yeah, so in the first set of results here on SQLite, uh, thanks to ZFS, FreeBSD12 and 11.2 are faster than both Linux and Windows. Oh, yeah. Caching is a good thing. And then in their final comparison here, the difference between FreeBSD12 compiled with Clang versus FreeBSD12 with GCC8 is uh, quite minimal in the first test there. Uh, In the go benchmark i guess um since go's got its own compiler there's not going to be a comparison of clang versus gcc
0: Mm, that's out of that one yeah or it's not Uh, playing into the comparison
1: very large difference between FreeBSD 11.2 and 12 and i wonder what that's about i doubt it's actually an improvement in 12 and more something with the benchmark
0: yeah probably uh They say that uh, while FreeBSD 12.0 had picked up just one win of the Windows-slash-Linux comparisons run, the FreeBSD performance is moving in the right direction. FreeBSD 12.0 was certainly faster than FreeBSD 11.2 in this dual Intel Xeon scalable server based on a Tion 1U platform. Meanwhile, to no surprise given the data last week, Clear Linux was by far the fastest out-of-the-box operating system tested. Never heard about Clear Linux, but...
1: It's uh, the Intel one, so I'm guessing it uses oh. the Intel compiler or something and takes advantage of the, the CPU just the a little hardware. bit better. Mm. Okay. Interesting they, in their j benchmark here that OpenSUSE is like off the chart. <laughs>
0: <bad>. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So they did some uh, extra benchmarks on 11.2 and 12.0 with this hardware. In total, they ran 120 benchmarks for these BSD tests and of the Uh, Of those 120 tests, there were just 15 cases where FreeBSD 11.2 was faster than 12.0. Okay, so majority of uh, 12.0 tests were faster. Uh, Seeing FreeBSD uh, 12.0 faster than 11.2 nearly 90% of the time is an accomplishment. And usually with other operating systems, we see more of a mixed bag on new releases with not much solidly better performance. It was also great seeing the competitive performance out of FreeBSD when using the Clang compiler for the source-based tests compared to the GCC-8 performance. And they have, of course, additional data available via the open benchmarking results file and as well on their website.
1: Interesting, the 7-zip compression bank, they seem to only have GCC results, which is odd because 7-zip definitely compiles with Clang just fine.
0: Yeah, and might Provide some optimizations with that
1: compiler. Uh, one, more, one more benchmark they can do. Compilers <laughs> can be a funny thing. I remember testing the Z standard stuff, and there's like one certain level where GCC will suddenly do a lot better than Clang, and all the rest, it's about the same. <laughs>
0: yeah, it's sometimes uh, not very clear how this suddenly happens. Is it an outlier or something else?
1: It just gets so complicated at some point, the code generation stuff.
0: Mm. But the best benchmark is the one that you run yourself with your own use cases and with your own workloads, whether it's a desktop or embedded system, and that you can better compare and see whether that makes it faster or slower.
1: Yeah, some of these I would like to investigate what's going on here. Uh, Like the FLAC audio encoding, I don't see any reason why that would be much slower on FreeBSD than Linux. I'm sure mm. there's a reasonable explanation.
0: Yeah. Okay, uh, let's look at the next one, which is also interesting from the title at least. Uh, we have a story about how NetBSD came to be shipped by, drumroll, Microsoft.
1: Yeah, okay. this is just a, kind of a short story, <laughs> but a good one. So back in the year 2000, almost 20 years ago now, uh, Joe Britt, uh, Matt Hershenson, and Andy Rubin formed a company called Danger Incorporated. Uh, Danger (laughs) developed the world's first recognizable smartphone called the Danger Hip Hop, uh, which T-Mobile eventually sold uh, their first hip hop under the brand name Sidekick in October of 2002. Uh, Danger had a well-developed kernel that had been designed and built in-house. Uh, the kernel came to be viewed as not a core intellectual property, and Danger started a search for replacement. To have, uh, so rather than having to spend engineering time building a kernel all the time, they could just use the stock one. <clears throat> for business reasons, most, uh, mostly to do with legal concerns over the license, uh, they decided not to go with something available under the GPL, And rejected Linux and began to consider BSD Unix as a replacement for the kernel. Uh, So in 2006, uh, the author of the blog post here was hired by Mike Chen, the manager of Kernel Development Group, to investigate the feasibility of replacing the Danger kernel with a BSD kernel and to pick which of the BSDs to use uh, and to develop a prototype and to develop the plan for adopting BSD uh, or adapting BSD for Danger's requirement. So NetBSD was easily the best choice uh, among the BSD variations at the time uh, because it had a well-developed cross-development tools, means you could uh, stand up a NetBSD desktop and use it on your Intel-powered machine to compile uh, a NetBSD kernel for the ARM processor in the phone. And, you know, uh, NetBSD has always had uh, very good support for lots and lots of strange ARM processors and so on. If you're interested in some mailing list archaeology, you should look for some of the messages sent to the NetBSD technical mailing list from uh, PicoVax. Um, so they began uh, product development on a specific prototype of the phone that would eventually become the Sidekick LX2009 back in 2007, and uh, contracts for the phone were written with uh, T-Mobile. We were about halfway through the two-year development cycle, Um uh, the, game, the the reason why it was named the LX 2009 is it was meant to come out in 2009, uh, when Danger was bought by Microsoft in 2008. Microsoft, of course, would have preferred to ship the Sidekick running their Windows CE, uh, a Windows Mobile product, uh, rather than NetBSD, but a schedule analysis performed by uh, the author here, and then another one performed by an independent outside contractor, indicated that. Rebuilding it to run a different OS uh, would have resulted in unacceptable delays. Um, so they stuck with NetBSD and the Sidekick device, the Microsoft Sidekick, sold uh, running NetBSD. hmm. Yeah, that's how it happens. So it turns out there was a BSD powered phone uh, 10 years ago. Yeah, <laughs> uh, if only
0: it had catched on, but I guess they were already a bit late to the game.
1: Well, at the same time, they were the very first smartphone, but yeah, didn't yeah. manage to uh, capture the market. Yeah, make it appealing enough.
0: And we are going into the Beastie Bits this week, uh, starting with Unleashed 1.2 has been released.
1: And you're asking, what is that? Cool. Uh, so this is the third release of Unleashed, an operating system fork of a Lumos. Uh, the release is uh, relatively light on changes. The major changes since uh, version 1.1 is that the uname-p and uname-m now return AMD64 and that the removal of the Solaris auditing support mm-hmm. um, So they removed some stuff a bunch of uh, libraries like libnvfru and libfru uh, and zfs and Solaris. Uh, and they added CTF convert and CTF merge and changed the things, uh, bits of UNAME. Uh, renamed some of the VNode interfaces and added uh, LibreSSL, OpenSSH, and updated NTP, VIM, harbor data, and the time zone data. <laughs>
0: And if you want to learn more about this OS, go to unleashed-os.org. And remember the Chaos Communication Congress that happened uh, between the years after Christmas and New Year's. Uh, There are a couple of videos that might be interesting to you from that, Mm -hmm. and the recordings are out there by now, or at least a couple of them, if not all. Uh, Taming the Chaos is one of them. Can we build systems that actually work?
1: Yes, uh, and this has... Links to a bunch of research happening at Cambridge University, including the Cherry BSD project, uh, REMS, and Cerberus.
0: Oh yeah, yep. Giving Cherry a little bit of limelight there—that's—that's mm-hmm. that's good. And uh, oh, we have something about IPv6 here: potholes to avoid when migrating to IPv6. That's over at Rachel by the Bay. So, apparently, uh, some of of, of her uh, posts are sourced from observing the kinds of mistakes that people are likely to make. And uh, watching a bunch of services migrate to dual-stack IPv4 plus IPv6 behavior showed uh, her a lot of places where it can go wrong. And, uh, for example, how many people have built a service where they pass around connection details as a host name colon, and then a port number?
1: Yeah, uh, it's very common to have hostname or IP address, colon, port number. Um, which is fine because you have you know, two colon 10443. Uh, yeah. But once you have IPv6, the IP address has colons in it. So when you're looking at it here, you can't obviously tell that that's a port number. Well, in this case, because it's too many digits, you kind of can, but that doesn't apply if it had just been 443. Um, and so then you end up uh, with the interesting bits like having... Uh, square brackets around the IP address to contain all of those colons and then so square bracket v6 address close square bracket colon the port number um, but you know you have to teach your program to deal with that and even just the fact that suddenly IP addresses can actually contain the letters A through F
0: mm-hmm. yep well, it's not too easy to just uh, replace everything uh, in your Scripts. Uh, think about IPv6 specialties, and then uh, change your programs accordingly.
1: Yes. Uh, the other bit is the shortcut in V6 of having two colons to collapse a whole range of zeros. Mm-hmm. Make um, it shorter. So in this example, they have you know three. I don't know hex sets. Uh, the double colon and then some, the rest of the address and the port number, eighty-eight on the end. Um, well, if you interpret this incorrectly, it looks like that's all one host address, and it just has uses whatever the default port number is. But really what they mean is one extra set of zeros, and the last set there is actually meant to be a different port number. And suddenly, mm-hmm. it messes it all up. Yep.
0: <laughs> ah, string parsing is becoming more and more important. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> Uh, for uh, the people who are a bit more visual, uh, we have an update to X Screen Saver uh, 5.42 has been released, including iOS and Android.
1: I didn't know there was X Screen Saver for Android.
0: <laughs> it's, yeah, I'm not uh, sure if it, it's in there already, or do you need to install it first via the App Store?
1: Uh, but included the- updates are the blue screen of death for Solaris are now far more accurate. <laughs> <laughs> okay,
0: uh, and a couple of other things like font fixes or um, Saber settings work again on macOS 10.14 if you're still on that version or already are and uh, a couple of other things uh, you can find the full notes in our link in the show notes. Another thing for the inclined sysadmin or Unix aficionado, SSH examples in tunnels.
1: Yeah, so this is website has 22 different examples of doing things with SSH, including doing a simple SOX proxy, doing port forward tunneling, tunneling to a secondary host, reverse tunneling, reverse proxying, uh, establishing a VPN over SSH, uh, how to use SSH copy ID, uh, running commands remotely, doing remote packet captures, and then viewing them with Wireshark. So basically, running tcv dump on the remote machine and piping the result into Wireshark on your machine, so you can analyze it in real time. Um, using SSH to copy uh, folders from a local to a remote system, um, running GUI applications using X11 forwarding over SSH, and all kinds of other things.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that can. It's not just the utility you use to connect to a server. They can do a lot of other stuff. Yep. Uh, other things that we found is a help request uh, from mbuff, uh, request for comments. Uh, this is over at Reddit. And um, the question is there, can m underscore free be used to traverse between mbuff chains or should another method be used? This is in the FreeBSD Reddit. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's a couple of, uh, or two an- or yeah two answers, um, but I'm not sure if they solve that already. They found a couple of or a snippet in the implementation and design of FreeBSD book, um, but if someone else has something to contribute, we just thought we put out the message about this threat that there's some question about coding and m- buffs. Uh Oh, here we go. Uh, this is the NSA. Uh, we have an article about uh, them releasing free reverse engineering tools. This is the NSA. Remember the. Yep. people who are into keeping secrets.
1: <laughs> so the NSA developed their Ghidra tool back at the start of the 2000s. And for the past few years, uh, it's been sharing it with other U S government agencies that have uh cyber teams who need to look at the inner workings of malware strains or suspicious software. Um, but, um, The existence of this tool was never a state secret, but the rest of the world learned about it back in 2017 when uh, WikiLeaks published Vault 7, a collection of internal documentation files that were allegedly stolen from an internal government network. Um, According to these documents, Ghidra is coded in Java and has a graphical user interface and works on Windows, Mac, and Linux. Um, It also says it can analyze binaries for all major operating systems, including Windows, Mac, and Linux, Android, and iOS, and a modular architecture allows users to add packages in case they need extra features. Um, but it's going to be presented at the RSA conference and the session uh, notes. say The tool includes all the features expected in high-end commercial tools with new and expanded functionality that they have developed uniquely.
0: Oh, okay. Well, that's interesting that they uh, present that tool. hmm And last in the Beastie Bits this week, we have running FreeBSD on a Raspberry Pi 3 using a custom image created with Crochet and Poudreire. So this is Michael's (laughs) demonic doodles here. And uh, it's from October, but still current enough so that we should mention it. So we
1: mentioned building uh, 12 beta 1, but that'll work obviously on 12.0 release. Um, So they check out Crochet, make a list of the packages they want, Uh, set up Poudre and start building those packages. And Mm -hmm. then... uh, Fine-tuning for the... Configure uh, Crochet to build the system image. Uh, And do that. And then uh, you'll end up with an image file you can DD to your Raspberry Pi. Ah, excellent. Yeah, if you don't want to wait for the official images to
0: come out or put in your own little bits and pieces, then use that method. And uh, that's the Beastie Bits for this week. We have questions and feedback, of course, uh, as Mm -hmm. always. Uh, If you have questions for us or show uh, ideas, content we should cover in the future episodes, send that to feedback at bstnow.tv. And way we have something to cover in this episode or the future ones. Uh, The first one is Dries. uh, Let's talk a bit about jails. Okay. So that is the following. Uh, Could we talk a bit about jail configuration, specifically when dealing with a dynamic IPv6 prefix? How do people assign an IPv6 address to their jail when using a dynamic IPv6 prefix?
1: Uh, For a regular jail, yes, that's kind of difficult. Regular jails very much assume a static IP address. You know, they don't support DHCP or Slack or any kind of dynamic addresses. However, as you mentioned in your next question, uh, the advantage V-image. to a VM image jail over a regular jail is that it has its own networking stack and can run uh, things like DHCP for V4 or Slack or whatever you need to have the dynamic IPv6 prefix uh, in the container. Uh, basically, it has its own networking stack, so it'll have its own MAC address, and then you just bridge it uh, to your device, and that way it should get its own address as if it was a separate device on the network.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, so, so
1: in your particular case, it seems like vimage jails would solve your problem. Uh, also, the amount of effort required to do it is much less in FreeBSD12 because it's a feature that's available by default rather than having to recompile your kernel to enable it. Oh,
0: yeah, he mentioned that, that it's not possible. It's in stable 12. Mm-hmm. And he links to the revision
1: there. Yeah, and he says ah. uh, his ISP gives him a slash 56, which he can obtain using IPV, or, uh, DCP dcpv 6 um, and it says DHCPv6 puts a slash 56 prefix from the 56 range on my LAN interface and from there uh, router advertising takes over. So if you use a image jail, you'll basically just run the DHCP client a second time inside the jail and it'll get another address as if it was just a second machine also on your network.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that's already something. I mean, it should get you there. Uh, is there anything else from the message? Oh yeah, he asked, is there anything planned in the future for the jail infrastructure to pick up dynamic prefix on an interface and simply choose addresses from?
1: Uh, for the kind of regular jails? No. Uh, and then with VMH jails, uh, again, it's meant to be slightly closer to like a VM where it has its own network stack. And so you just treat it as if it was in an extra, an additional host that you were bridging to your network.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Or maybe one of our listeners has something like that where a completely different solution that still works, uh, then they can send that to us and we'll uh, mention that. Okay, hopefully that's the the answer to the questions. And uh, we move on to OHB with a question about ZFS root data set. Uh, so uh, they have recently started trying out FreeBSD and they have a ZFS question. Huh. That's always synonymous, I guess. FreeBSD mm-hmm. and ZFS, it's coming soon. So in the third edition of Absolute FreeBSD, as well as the FreeBSD Handbook, a ZFS list command shows something like this. So name, use, available, refer, and mount point columns. And as you can see, the root dataset is unmounted and set to having mount point of none. Oh, yeah, that gets people confused. But when I installed FreeBSD 12.0, the root dataset is now mounted by default, which you can see in the second output. Uh, based no, on what I, I have, see
1: that it's... Oh, sorry. Ah, he's talking about the top one, not the one actually called root.
0: (laughs) Yeah, not capital root. Yes. Yeah. And uh, based on what he has read about ZFS so far, I can't see a benefit to this change, but I'm a newbie, so I'm probably missing something. Can you tell me why the root dataset is now mounted by default on a new install?
1: Yes, uh, I can tell you exactly why. Uh, It's because of the experience when you create an additional dataset. So um, if you do zfs create zroot slash new thing uh, if zroot itself has no mount point then the mount point of the new data set you just created will inherit that and also be none uh, meaning that the new data set you just created isn't mounted anywhere and you have to manually go and set a mount point and, and mess with it whereas if on a new install you do ZFS create, uh, Zroot slash new thing. It will mount, it will add its name to the end of the mount point of its parent. Uh, so it will inherit the mount point basically, uh, and will end up mounted as slash Zroot slash new thing, which happens to be the default thing that happens if you, if you create a new pool, which is Zpool create Benedict and then a list of disks or whatever, <laughs> it defaults to being mounted to slash the pool name. Uh, And so I kept that same behavior uh, when I rebuilt the installer Um, for, A, the two reasons. A, that's what ZFS does by default, so there was no reason to change it. And B, the bigger one, when you create an additional dataset, having it mounted to where you would expect it to be instead of it not being mounted uh, seemed to be a much more common user experience. Uh, This is basically one of the things I ran into while writing the ZFS book uh, and talking about creating these extra data sets i was like oh you have to go and manually set the mount point and stuff this is really annoying so i fixed it uh but it is a change eventually i guess But yes uh, the reason is so that when you create a new data set it will actually inherit that mount point and be mounted somewhere instead of not being mounted anywhere and therefore not being very useful
0: yeah, it's an, an improvement there, and yes. we got uh, that into twelve.
1: Yes, I, I don't know how I screwed it up in the first place to make it temporarily not that.
0: <laughs> and uh, boot environments also will be mounted correctly, of course, in
1: this new way because uh, uh, it's just it's nothing to do with boot environments. Boot environments mount is slash anyway. And right, so right, yeah, not related at all.
0: Yeah, so, right. It's just the mount point. Okay, hopefully um, that uh, gets you less confused and uh, good luck with your future endeavors in uh, learning FreeBSD and uh, ZFS, of course. And if you have something, uh, again, don't hesitate to ask again. Uh, the last question we have is from Mika about active-active NAS sync recommendations. Oh, wow. Uh, goes like this. Hey, crew. Hey, captain. Uh well, <laughs> thanks so much for the show, he writes. It's really great to hear you guys talk about and encourage the community. Keep it up. Thank you. It's. I mean, we've been uh, motivated somehow and uh, mm-hmm. just carry it on. So he's been a longtime Linux user and admin, but has also become pretty enamored of ZFS and run FreeNAS in a couple of key areas in client sites and, in, and internally at our MSP and ISP in New Zealand and Australia. Oh, wow. I also use it at home for everything I can f- I can from VM backing to media storage. Oh, wow. You're already quite into it. Uh, we have one client with major offices in both New Zealand and Australia. The decision was made for both sides to have the same NAS, like the keep them in sync to art- so artists in either country could work together, round tripping on the same project, doing different parts of the workflow, like cutting in Australia and 3D effects in New Zealand. Are you doing the new Peter Jackson film? No. Uh, so since this is in media entertainment, we're talking about 80 terabytes of active data and a few dozen artists and users. Uh, right now, the system is running Resilio Connect and syncing to Windows file servers. It's working, but personally, I find the solution distasteful. I know what you mean. Uh, we do have other another site already running at TrueNAS, and they have a small but growing office in the US. And how can I set up a real-time... B-directional sync between two ZFS systems running BSD. Kanto and thanks again.
1: Uh, ZFS is not a clustered file system, so it its sync does not work that way. Uh, so you can't really do that. You could have something like a VPN and have uh, NFS or something, but again, you know, you, like you said, 80 terabytes of data, slow internet, you're not going to be able to pull down big files that way. Um so you're going to need something that's actually a clustered file system. But even then, because you're going between islands, basically, um, the, the problem you have is, you know... The uh, initial sync? I mean, just... Well, eight, it's not, not even sorry. dealing with the initial sync, but the problem is more when you... Someone in Australia edits one of these large files... Uh, if they change a whole gigabyte of it, if you yeah, then open the file in New us. Zealand, only half of that gigabyte of changes have been synced over so far. And then... So either the person in New Zealand needs... Somehow the file system needs to tell them that they can't open that file right now because it's changing, or they're going to make changes to it that are newer and therefore going to clobber and undo some of the changes done in Australia and so on. So this is a much more complicated problem. Mm. Um, It's not a feature that ZFS has. You might be able to use something on top of ZFS. Um, I'm hoping next week I found an article I haven't had time to read yet, but about using Gluster, uh, the distributed file system, on top of um, FreeBSD and ZFS. Uh, And so maybe we'll have a way to do that by then. But even then, I suspect there's... uh, problems with trying to do this whether you know i'm surprised you haven't run into these problems with the resilio connect thing between your two windows file servers uh unless it's a little bit more like um there's these files that only be edited in australia and then just consumed in new zealand and vice versa yeah. in which case you could have two separate data sets and then sync one direction only each um you could do that with zfs but um bidirectional sync is not possible. Mm.
0: Yeah, there's also uh, Ceph. Uh, there's apparently mm-hmm. support for FreeBSD in Ceph. Some um, nice, yes. Yeah, and, the, and there's a, a doc at their website. I'm not sure whether that's the uh, the development version or already the one that's publicly available. Uh, but it, they, they have a couple of instructions about creating a pool for Ceph and doing the additional thing but it probably has the same issues that Ellen mentioned just um, having not the, well, the structure yeah,
1: uh, even most clustered or distributed file systems are kind of meant to be distributed across machines in the same room uh, and so you know, assuming that you're going to have 10 gigabits or something so that the rate that changes come into the one side of the file system it'll be able to modify it on the the followers of in the, the cluster in a reasonable amount of time. Whereas if the changes you save to the NAS in Australia are going to take four hours before they can completely converge to New Zealand, that causes lots of problems.
0: Uh, yeah. Uh, people mentioned in the, uh, the chat room that they should look at the Panzura proprietary product,
1: apparently. Um, that's not quite the same thing and I don't know that it actually supports multiple offices. Maybe it does. Huh. I don't know.
0: Uh, since they are having a, a true NAS already, they should probably give IX systems a call and mention that problem.
1: Yeah, Maybe uh, but they again, know something. There is no solution for bidirectional it's, sync with ZFS. It's just not uh, the way ZFS works. Right. But maybe something else
0: than ZFS is... Uh, as, as much as we don't like recommending something else.
1: Um, again, for that you, kind of problem. almost all of them end up being something that would run on top of ZFS.
0: Mm. Yeah, something distributed on te- on ZFS. Yeah, it's difficult. Um, again, if someone else knows about something or has something of that already solved or in place, then uh, send it to us at feedback at bsdnow.tv and then we'll uh, connect the, the dots here. Okay, that's it for our show number 280, and we'll all see you at, of course, 280 and 1.